0: Welcome, everyone, to season one, episode four of the On Path podcast. Every episode of the season features a conversation with the guest about their life and career to date, the path they're on. In this episode, I speak with Dan Ferreira. Dan is the head of measurement and analytics, retail at Google. He oversees an analytics practice aimed at helping e commerce retailers with their digital advertising strategy through data driven insights and measurement feedback loops. What does that actually mean? Well, that's one of my first questions to Dan, and he breaks it down for us. He's currently based in Boston, but was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dan's an industrial engineer by training, but opted to pursue a career in management consulting with Deloitte for six years. Along the way, he also earned an MBA from a top-ranked school, Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Dan's an accomplished individual, and in the first half of the conversation, we talk all about his professional path. Why industrial engineering? Why an MBA? How did he land his management role at Google? Then just as interesting is learning about who Dan is as a person. He shares with us his personal path from Sao Paulo to Boston via Atlanta and Chicago. We talk about individuals he looks up to, how becoming a father has changed him, and just as a side note, representing Brazil in international golf competitions. So with that, let's get into it. As always, thank you for listening. Hi Dan, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining.
1: Thanks I really appreciate you having me on.
0: So we already had some great exchanges leading up to this conversation and there are a whole range of topics I'd like to get into. But I want to start off with bullet point number one on your recipe for a perfect day, which is killer coffee. Not just good coffee, but killer coffee. What does that mean for you?
1: Killer coffee means really strong, really tasty and at the right time. That's the right combination to get the killer coffee. Every day should start like that. A good day, bad day needs to start with killer coffee. But I think from there, the building upon the, the caffeination coming from the killer coffee, I think the day unfolds a little bit like this. I think it's with the coffee comes a little bit of golf. I'm a lifelong golfer and the ability to kind of get out there in the morning sort of be able to see feel the grass freshly cut if possible amazing then having a chance to to catch up with friends at lunch beer or wine perhaps to to balance out the coffee would be great and then spending an afternoon with my kids i have two young boys so it's really nice to be able to get out to a playground with them take them swimming something like that and then a little date night with my wife that would be that would be a great day and then at no point in the day to make it extra great the icing on top would be a a day free of politics i think that would be a great way we're recording this here in the lead up to the US presidential election in 2020 so that's very top of mind right now
0: yeah cool cool sounds great okay so there're definitely some points in there that i want to get back into but let's start off with your professional life what you work on right now So you're the Head of Measurement and Analytics for Retail at Google. And I'm curious to know, how would you explain your role to someone outside of marketing and outside of tech?
1: It's not easy. I will say it's easier than explaining my last job. Uh, I was a consultant before. That's impossible to explain. This is a little bit easier. So, so I'll give it a stab and you can let me know how I do. My job is essentially to help Google's e-commerce retailers. Uh, and who advertise through google media in two particular ways the first is with analytics and i I describe that as how can clients learn from insights that are unique to google about the opportunities that we see for their business i think this was really salient in 2020 right where example when the work from home orders stemming from COVID 19 began taking place we were able to quantify how demand in certain categories was shifting we saw demand moving to things like office furniture, which now seems really obvious, but at the time, wasn't so obvious. Like if you go back to like sort of the March, April timeframe, we help clients shift out of the wedding dress and wedding paraphernalia business into things that were much more salient. So the ability to kind of help companies pivot, in many cases, help them stay afloat and succeed, et cetera. And, and we even have CEOs who consume these insights to help drive their business. So that's one part, the analytics side. The other hat that, that my team and I wear is around advertising measurement. And the idea here is all about creating really strong feedback loops for clients to be able to measure the efficacy of their marketing. You know, one thing that's made digital marketing such a revolution in the last 20 or so years has been this ability to really be accountable, really be measurable. And we're always working on ways to be to, to do that even better. So our team has domain expertise in helping clients with measurement conversations. Measurement infrastructures, et cetera, so they can feel confident that what they're spending with, with Google is returning a strong return for their business objectives. I, I, I don't do it alone. I have a privilege of leading a team of analytical leads that, that help me along the, the way. And as analytical leads, we represent Google and the clients in these two domains. I'm always super inspired by my team. I'm always learning from them about client challenges, what's going on in the industry really cool, innovative solutions to some of these problems that I described. And then simplifying what can be a very complex set of tools and, and solutions in a seamless way and to help clients uh, make the most use of it. So hopefully that helps. That's, that's a bit about what I do. There's, there's a lot there, but that's, that's, that's what I do for a living.
0: Yeah. That was great. You mentioned you, you work with a team of analytics professionals. What are some of the hard and soft skills it takes to be on a team like yours?
1: Yeah, good question. I think it's a combination of skills. I think our our roles are really cool because they are very interdisciplinary by nature. I think there's sort of three no matter whenever I hire analytical leads, there's sort of three main ingredients that I think are always present. The dosages may vary and we try to be deliberate about what clients are gonna work on, et cetera, to put them in and then calibrate the dosages accordingly. But I think the three ingredients are business slash sales skills, right? The second is technical analytical skills right can you do you have the horsepower do you have the chops can you problem solve or are you quantitative and the third is do you understand marketing and specifically performance marketing so those three things i think if you're intellectually curious like to dabble don't want to commit and force yourself into one of those things as your primary as your major so to speak but you like all three and like to dabble This role brings the three things together in a really unique way. So I I always look for the right combination of three. Now we have clients who are loaded with data scientists, are very technical, so so that that technical analytical skill set probably needs to jump a little bit more. We have clients who who aren't so and and need help understanding more of the the 101 on these topics that i described. And then we we sort of gravitate towards the business skills, et cetera. so we, we calibrate accordingly, but I think the three, the three ingredients I described are, are always prevalent.
0: Yeah. Cool. Okay. So at, at this point, I'd like to rewind back a few decades, talk about your origin story, and then kind of work our way to, to current day. Does that sound good? Absolutely. So you were born and raised in one of the largest cities in the world, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'd love to hear from you. How did growing up in Sao Paulo shape you into the person you are today?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm an analytics professional, as you know, so I'm never going to have the counterfactual to know uh, what it was like to not live there. But I think as I speak to friends and as I got to when I moved to the U.S., I think there were some differences that, that sort of really resonated and helped me understand how my background uniquely shaped me. As you said, São Paulo is a huge city and as a huge city, it has huge city problems and those things weren't necessarily known to me i i always enjoyed the dynamics of a big city the pace the energy those things i've always i, I grew up with that as sort of my baseline expectation in the, the counterpoint to that it also once i moved into smaller cities i never lived in a small city but i moved in smaller cities i've gotten to enjoy things that i didn't necessarily appreciate earlier on. I think top of that list is the notion of of safety and security. Sao Paulo is not only a big city, but one where economic disparity is very, very high and very apparent. And as a logical consequence of that, violence is prevalent. And And it's it's the peace of mind, I feel, from not being in that environment right now is something I cannot put a price on it's probably one of the main factors I haven't moved back to Brazil since I moved away, what has been 17 years ago now. So that's one, that's one big aspect that that really I I focus on a lot, especially now um, with a young family is one thing that I put a, put a price on that I don't think I fully appreciated when I was um, young growing up in Brazil. I also value my time more. I, I think Brazil has this lovely culture, people are incredibly warm, generous, friendly, and, and that's, that's all great, and I and I really appreciate it. The, the downside of that, and I learned this in, when I did a little bit of work in Brazil, is that that warmth comes with a lot of investment time, a lot of investment in being sensitive to people's emotions. And those are all very important in any culture, but in Brazil, it's so, such a premium placed on that that what I felt is what it actually led to is a use of time that I would find very frustrating, right? A mm-hmm. lot of warmth, a lot of, with, with, I, I like to get stuff done. I like to move forward, I like to move fast. And I felt like some of those things were, were difficult to accomplish in Brazil and things that my personality had a hard time sort of absorbing and adjusting to I think so that, there's two ways in which like Brazil shaped me and then I sort of moved on and spent now, the time I've spent in the United States has made me realize that was unique about Brazil in some ways you could argue Brazil didn't shape me very much at all, right? I can't play soccer. I can't Samba dance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I get hot very easily. <laughs> yeah. So so in some ways I'm not Brazilian at all, but I think in some other ways, I really look back to my experience in Brazil as having profoundly shaped me too.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's very interesting that you mentioned the safety aspect. I mean, that's something also having lived in, in various countries in South America, I think about a lot. And I think it's one of those things when, when you move in the direction of more safety, then after it's very difficult to move back.
1: I think that's right. I think people who have stayed and grew up with that and just just took it as the cost of doing business or the cost of living per se it probably impacts you less. But you're right. I think I think you said it's spot on.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. So you graduate from high school in Brazil and you move to the U.S. to Atlanta and you do a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering in Georgia Tech. So my first question is. Why industrial engineering? And then if you could also tell us a bit about the transition from Sao Paulo to Atlanta.
1: Yeah, I, I've always been more left brained, which isn't a surprise given that I work in analytics now. But the what I liked about industrial engineering is that it was technical enough to have the kind of depth and the unique sort of expertise that I wanted to build, but it wasn't an engineering that was lab-based. I, so meaning the applications were directly into business. So as someone who was always keen on numbers and being technical, but never really wanted to be a, like an engineer with a capital E per se, and always wanted to go into business, it felt like a really good starting point. So I, so I enjoyed that right off the bat and, and and knew that that was going to be the right sort of mix of of technical and business for me. Why Georgia tech? I think a couple factors played in there. One is, at the time, I did want a, I did want a warmer climate coming from Brazil. <laughs> at, at the time, that was something that mattered. Georgia Tech has had the number one industrial engineering program, at least in the United States, for, I think, 20 years or so and counting now. And I've had family in, in the Atlanta area for a long time. My mother's American. Her parents have lived in Atlanta for a long time. So, so for me, it's, it was also a nice safety net there, too. So those three factors came together really nicely and made the decision to go there relatively easy for me.
0: Okay. And so, so industrial engineering was kind of already decided as you were entering, it wasn't something that you declared later on.
1: No, I, I was very, very set on pursuing that.
0: Okay, great. And so after Georgia Tech, you were at a couple different organizations and you got into consulting through Deloitte. And I'd love to hear about your pre MBA stint at Deloitte, and then we can talk about, about the MBA experience as well.
1: Yeah, I think like a lot of people coming out of their bachelor's programs, they, there's this notion of like where am I gonna start what am I going to do do I am I going to narrow myself too early and consulting is great for people who have the anxiety of not wanting to make that choice early on and so I think it was a great start for me because I knew I was going to get a variety of experiences a number of different challenges work with very smart motivated people and and work hard and get a chance to sort of try to accelerate my career as a result of that so my first in at deloitte was i moved to chicago i uh which i loved great city and and got to travel a lot of the country doing a lot of work primarily in the supply chain space so i did a lot of work in procurement and logistics which was a really nice extension of the industrial engineering work a lot of the a lot of the coursework lend itself really well to those those business problems so it was a really nice place to start and the more time i spent doing that i got a little bit more focused on retail, specifically brick-and-mortar retail, but so developed some expertise there in retail that I really enjoyed and started to really understand the industry dynamics and the industry challenges, and it was a really nice place to start for me to explore my career.
0: Okay, so after a couple of years at Deloitte, you decided to do a full-time two-year uh, MBA. Could you tell us a little bit about what uh, led up to that decision?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. My my father had had a very similar trajectory where he was an engineer, undergrad, MBA, and I. So I knew because I knew business was always going to be sort of where I would play rather than like being an engineer. I, I I wanted to understand. All right, let me get the bachelor's in engineering, and then no, the MBA option is always there. And then eventually, I was like, all right, I've done I've done something in business. I can see why where specifically, I want to like take advantage of the MBA option. And the reason why that was, is I knew I was good with numbers. I knew I was very left brain. I knew all of that was inherent in me. Now let me round myself out, right? How do I get really good at some of the things that I haven't explored? Meaning subjects like marketing, which I hadn't done any of until that point. How do I become better at the software skills at presentations and framing? And sort of the intellectual flexibility to come to topics that are less, you know, Tangibly quantitative, etc. So I really wanted that experience and I specifically sought out programs that That would have that in the DNA of the experience and in, in the in the coursework so Knowing that I wanted to pursue an MBA at a program where the sort of right brain was going to exercised a little bit harder I, pers- I specifically pursued an MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. So just north of where I already was in Chicago and I found the experience to be great. I met a lot of my best friends, really got a lot out of the experience, the ability to really step back for two years and, and, and do it in a full-time capacity, really made it much more immersive in that way and felt like I really accomplished the goals that I set out to do in that regard. The people talk a lot about the network you get from an MBA program and all those things and that, that, that has proved out in spades. Number one, the friendships have been great since some of my best friends come from those two years. And now looking back a little bit forward it's nice to know that essentially i'm a phone call away from a number of organizations and i put that network to play in a few things when i was weighing career decisions or wanted to network into a company and understand contacts things like that so that's been invaluable
0: cool so since you're a quantitative person i have a quantitative question for you so you you were one of the top mba programs in the world from the sum total of what you got out of the experience what percentage would you say came from the coursework and being in the classroom versus the out-of-the-classroom experience?
1: So what you don't know is a really tricky question to answer because my wife is an MBA professor. So, so if I, so I need to be, I need to be careful with the politics. <laughs> how I, how I, this. I would say 30% in the classroom, 30% the, the coursework you do outside of the classroom, and I'll explain why that is. And that leaves another 40% of totally unrelated to the classroom experience. Yeah. So, 30% of the classroom, the professors were largely great, got a lot out of that, really felt pushed. The other 30% that's coursework but not in the classroom is. At Kellogg, anyway, it's all about teamwork. We do very little was done individually and alone. So the ability to team and tackle problems and projects with teams of people that were from so many different perspectives, some other consultants, people in finance, marketing, nonprofit, all sorts, all walks of life, like the ability to kind of coalesce and understand how to work together with teams in that that way was super valuable to me. And the other 40%, totally unrelated to the free space. My sort of mind space, clear thinking, the mm-hmm. ability to kind of travel and have flexibility to my schedule, things like that was, was, was a really big part of the experience. So that's how I would um, that's how I would weight the, the components there.
0: I'm curious, where did you travel to as a group?
1: Quite a bit. So before school even started, there's this tradition at Kellogg that you go on a trip or many people choose to go on a trip with people that they sort of are blindly paired up with, that they're about to start school with. And so I think it was about 25 of us went to Russia in, this was in 2010, uh, 2011. So 25 people had never met each other. We went to St. Petersburg, Moscow, had a really good time. And what's funny about this trip too, is you're not allowed to tell, you you can tell, you can say your name, you're not allowed to say where you're from, where you worked, there's probably some other like very core getting to know you one-on-one type things that you cannot ask each other. Which is really cool because you get that. Yeah, you force yourself to think like, oh, what do I have to ask? How do I go deeper first? And then at, in one night, sort of towards the end of the trip, there's like a big reveal and people are like are trying to guess <laughs> what your whole deal is. And then people either get surprised or it's like, oh, I knew it all along. And then you realize, oh, you, you actually were... You were this person's partner in life, and we didn't know that, like that kind of thing. So, so that was a really that's a really cool tradition that exists and that I really enjoyed and, and got things going. So, so Russia was kind of how it all started. Did some other travels. So there's a couple uh, ski trips along the way. Showed some of my colleagues around other parts of Brazil. I'm probably missing a few trips, but but those are some that really jumped to mind right away.
0: That, that's really interesting. The, so is that kind of a, in the in the Russia trip is that an informal framework that's in place or is that kind of like part of the official rules of the trip
1: no the, the surprise element is that's a long-standing tradition too and that's that's one thing that's uh, i think really unique and at first i wasn't a huge fan of it but but i've really grown to to like it and, and I, I i hope and then believe it so continues to day.
0: <laughs> cool and so i'm sure you visited the, the museum in st petersburg and uh focused strictly on academic activities
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> Um, so, uh, that was, yeah, this is before classes even started. So there was no, no, <laughs> any, effect, any kind of coursework. Anything. So it was all about getting to know your classmates, which was, which is great.
0: Yeah. Great. So in some of our previous exchanges, you mentioned that there was course, coursework you did in your MBA that served as an inflection point in your career. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. There were a lot of classes that I took in my MBA that, I I chose either because the subject was really interesting or because the professor was just such a rock. star. I was like, I don't care what you have to say. I just want to hear you say it. Um, and, uh, but I think one that I, I look back a few classes that I look back to the most now at this point in my career is one, I took a class specifically in marketing analytics. I don't know if that was the exact title of it, but that was essentially the core of it. And that's, that definitely had a light bulb moment go off for me going, Hey, my skill set in quantitative analytical does lend itself in market use cases beyond what I thought. So, so that's where the initial marketing bug was was planted for me, and I, I found that really interesting. So the ability to use advanced statistical analysis and, and modeling and things like that to solve very specific: who should I target? How much should I be willing to pay to acquire customers? Things like that. I mean, this was almost ten years ago, but it was a really important point of understanding. A marketing is shifting in this direction. It's getting more quantitative. I didn't pursue it right away for a career until a few years later, but at the time I was like, all right, this marketing is not what I thought it was. So that was really critical. The other classes that I really took, especially towards the end of my MBA experience were all about getting out of the quant range. There were classes specifically about leadership, some classes that was, I had a class that was an entrepreneurship series where people were, where entrepreneurs just came into the class and just spoke and it was just Q and A. And that was super valuable too, because you got to see a lot of the intangibles of what made people great leaders, great entrepreneurs, great community members. And so just understanding sort of their soul beyond just the, the nature of a textbook, I, I found super valuable and has really shaped me. And I still think about those examples constantly.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah, And honestly, I think those are the kind of classes that we even need to offer in, in high school. And I mean, that's valuable for everyone. Um, yeah leadership and negotiation skills and all the soft skills that yeah,
1: yeah it's key and it's, it's key it, it's great to get a sort of grounding foundation and know those are the things that are in the school of hard knocks once you get out of once you get out of a program <laughs> like that is, gets tested right away so having something to fall back on to 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 orient against i i think has been very helpful
0: yeah so after, after two years of a full-time MBA, you're out and you're, you're back in the workforce. So tell us a little bit about your second stint at Deloitte and then the transition to Google.
1: As someone who's never been in the, in the military, I call it my second tour of duty. Um, but um, yeah, this, the second stint was really, it sounds like, wow, well, you went back to the same company, you must have been doing the same thing, et cetera. Actually, it really wasn't. And, and for, for a lot of ways, they were very deliberate. One, I moved to cities, I moved to Boston versus practicing out of Chicago. So that was one thing that, that changed. And then what I worked on uh, changed significantly too. I still went back to retail, that wasn't different. But instead of being very much on the supply side of the house, I started moving more to the demand side of the house. So from the core supply chain work I had done before my MBA, I moved into product development, into merchandising, and then got my first stint into digital marketing. So all within the retail sphere. And there was an analytical thread throughout that entire journey, but the actual application changed over time. And the more I got into the demand side, I realized, all right, this, this is a really cool, there's something really cool going on here where the right elements of like strategy were involved. It was still very analytical and there was depth there. And it was a lot of these things were really powered by really cool technologies, right? To scale and just uh, to simplify, to speed up, et cetera. So, so that, that got me really excited. So I got to practice there a little bit and, and hone and my skills, but when I realized, all right, how many at bats am I gonna get at this in a consulting setting? It felt like probably not too many. And I was like, well, actually, like, if I wanna do this as my, my day job, I really wanna invest in this. And at that point, I realized, all right, if I really want to do this, I might be better off making a move out of consulting and mm-hmm. making a move into somewhere where, where this is sort of the core of business. And that's what got me into Google originally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have one final question about professional matters Then I want to talk a bit more about who you are as a person. So in 2020, knowing how the world is today, what do you think it takes to be a standout candidate on, on the job market? But either at the entry level or mid-career.
1: I don't know if my answer is specific to twenty twenty or is timeless. There might be an element of twenty twenty that might further augment this. Mm-hmm. I think it's clarity of thinking. Meaning, can you can you take a problem that you may not, never never have seen before? Can you unpack its core components? Can you build back your solution by putting the core components back with the point of view and then communicate that solution in a very simple, consistent way? And it's a really hard skill to teach. I think consulting does this really well. So I, t- so I take some of what I, whatever I know about clarity and structured thinking comes from consulting. So I really appreciate that. But without a heavy emphasis on it, it's a really hard skill to teach. And, and that's one that I think makes people not only good problem solvers, good communicators, good operators. And that's, that's one thing I think I value the most. The reason why I think 2020 puts an extra emphasis on it is because you know, we're, we're now we're interacting through video conferences and less personal thing. And I think that's the ability to get away without that as much is a little bit limited. Um, so that I think there's extra focus on, on the ability to do that kind of thing. So, so I think, so I think clarity of thinking is the number one thing always on my list and maybe, maybe even more so now.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I lied. I actually have one more question about okay. matters. <laughs> so Google is one of the most sought after employers, if I remember correctly, it's something like a million plus applicants a year, you know, like low single digit acceptance rate. So if you're open to discussing it, how did you land the position at Google?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll admit it wasn't the first, I didn't get my first, uh, first time I applied to a job at Google, I didn't get it in. And, but I learned a lot in the process and that's, that's actually fairly common for folks, uh, who get into Google. The, I think the, the number one thing I wanted to bring was intellectual curiosity, right? The ability to say, look, if I am a structured, clear thinker, I can find my way into solving problems. So that's, that was like point number one, and I wanted to, to live up to that in my interactions with interviewers, recruiters, et cetera. Two, I had dabbled in digital marketing and wanted to get into mar- Google's marketing and advertising business. So I spoke to my experience, I spoke to a little bit of that and spoke to things that I, that I knew. The reality is there was still a lot I hadn't covered in my experience. I didn't know the Google advertising suite that in depth. So I had to study and understand it and and create a a baseline awareness and starting to make a point of view uh, out of that. So so that was one thing that, especially between the first time I applied and got dinged and the second time that I applied and got through um, was, was a big difference. I I clearly knew I was like, I, I need to get deeper into this and understand the products and the offerings much better that was that was the key thing i think that's i think that was those are the key components that i wanted to highlight it was i had some retail experience and i did join google in a retail world Mm -hmm. that was probably helpful the reality is like i've done a bunch of brick-and-mortar retail work before then i got into the digital world with working with e-commerce clients when i first got into google and frankly there's not a whole lot that's similar between the two um maybe the products they sell but but they're, they're vastly different worlds So I was investing a ton in skills and less of a track record to get through. And then from there, build a track record once I got through.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, thanks for everything you shared about your professional journey to date. And at this point, I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk more about you as a person. So first question, who are one or two people who've been very influential in your life?
1: I think a lot of people can be influential. Like I, I copy everyone. Right. I copy, I, I pick up on little things that I like from people and, and, and try to emulate that. So I, I, I do find influence in a lot of people, but the, the, there's a few people that I probably copy the most from and or certainly aspire to try to copy the most from. And so, so two that I'll mention, one is Ayrton Senna. And for those who aren't familiar with Ayrton Senna, he is a Brazilian Formula One uh, race car driver. Who died at the sort of peak of his career back in 94 i'll never forget the day he died i was watching the race that he died in and you know i was a young boy was was not consolable after that but the but the parts that i think i think about the most are were his um, humility despite a very privileged upbringing the always represented brazil with pride and always took the flag and the podium with every race that he won and was always a big source of pride for the country, but pushed himself very hard, right? Was very focused on, on being a champion, very focused on being great, uh, very focused on living life very intensely. So those things I, I, I very much um, admire and appreciate in their incentive and still find myself thinking through all the time. But I'm not a race car driver, right? I'm a business guy. So I think the the second example I mentioned is someone to, who is a little bit closer to this sphere that I play in, and that's someone I've only gotten got familiar with much uh, much more recently, and that's Naval Ravikant. And Naval is someone who I came on my radar through through podcasts that I listened to and started exploring more. He's done a lot on Twitter, so his handle is Naval or it's spelled Naval uh, N A V A L on Twitter he's a Silicon Valley type. I think he's a investor and entrepreneur, but he's really made a name for himself more so for his philosophy. And when I say philosophy, we're not talking Aristotle type philosophy. It's really just very practical nuggets of wisdom that have applied themselves in business. I think he says, I think his whole spiel is how to build wealth, health and happiness, but I think he's unpacked, um, a lot of beliefs that are interesting some i think are beliefs that i had sort of intuitively but he crystallized in a much better in much better language and vocabulary than i could have and some things were like all right maybe i haven't thought about these things that he said that i that i wanted to sort of challenge myself and put it against my frame and say do i agree with this or I disagree with this and why but but i but think you know back to what we were talking about in terms of clarity of thinking mm. i think here's someone who has got this as a superpower and i very much want to emulate in that regard
0: yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what was that first point of contact? Was it a tweet storm? Was it a podcast interview?
1: I think it was the podcast first. Yeah. And I want to say it was the Tim Ferriss show that I first was acquainted to him. He's done a few, but um, I think that's where I first was introduced. And I was like, all right, on my radar, let me understand, follow on Twitter. And yes, he's had a few tweet storms that have really sort of taken off, and and many of those things and those tweet storms have really jumped out, and I still remember some of those tweets very clearly that still that still really resonate deeply with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say for me he's one of the top three thinkers I follow, uh, maybe along with uh, Nassim Taleb and Harari, just because as you said, like the the clarity of thinking is is incredible, and that whole tweet storm about. I think he calls it actually how to get rich, but it's, it's a lot, it's about a lot more than that. But what's so insightful is his breakdown on leverage in the past. It was about getting leverage through capital and labor, and now how you can get a lot more leverage through technology. And I think that's, that's fascinating. Really a must listen.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, agree. I think that's spot on. And I've had examined a lot, like a lot of his context is, you know, how to get rich in his language is about having leverage and about accountability. And a lot of that you really get through being an entrepreneur and a founder. I'm not a founder, right? I've been a big company, company guy for a long time. And that's, and so I've had to sort of reconcile what he says and, and repackage it for I think my context. But I think some of the other things that he's said around beyond just the economic engine, I think have been really valuable to me. I think some of the things that really step that really jump out to me is, I'll try to recall some of the quotes that I remember from either that tweets or more other tweets that he's since sent.
0: Hmm. So
1: apologies if I get it the wording correct, but I will try to re, uh, recall verbatim as much as possible. Don't partner with cynics and pessimists, their beliefs are self-fulfilling. So that's, that really hit a core, right? I can be cynical sometimes, so I wanted to really, that really challenged me, I think, in terms of like my own cynicism. Another one is pick an industry where you can play long-term games with long-term people, right? That's been great. Another, who you partner with, how you think long-term, how you kind of keep the same set of people constantly throughout your life versus jumping around has given me a lot to think about. And then I think one very much outside of the work environment that struck probably the deepest core with me is a fit body, calm mind, a house full of love, these things cannot be bought, they must be earned. I think that's one that there's always more work to do on all three of those dimensions. And no matter what professional success brings, that doesn't move the needle on these three at all. So I think those are things that I really look at beyond sort of the business, how to get rich concepts that he brings that I that have really probably even struck deepest with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great quote. Those are three fundamental pillars of life. So yeah. Dan, as, a, as I hear you describe your life, I feel like you've always been very strategic in your decision-making. If you look back, how has life been different than what you envisioned 10 years ago? Or did you see yourself kind of exactly where
1: you are? No, not at all. And, and that's not at all is the short answer uh, in terms of where I saw myself. I think the, if I look back 10 years ago, right? I was at this point in 2010, Applying for MBA programs, and and like I told you before, it was all about getting, a to- getting myself rounded out, getting as much variety as possible, focusing on my weaknesses, right, getting stronger at those things, and uh, and trying to do as many different things as possible to to round myself up. Nowadays, it's it's totally different. I operate very differently. I see myself trying to do the same things or, or very similar things anyway with a, with additional polish, doing it better, perfecting my craft. And, and that plays out in a few different ways, right? Like my, my life now is actually from a schedule. If you zoom out, very predictable, right? I, um, I wake up, I have breakfast with my kids. I go to work and then play with my kids after work and put them to bed. And then I debrief with my wife as we're cleaning up the house or everything. And this is the same thing pretty much every day, which. You can look at that and say, well, it's pretty boring. Now, if you zoom in, it's a little bit different, of course, every day. But the, but the reality is like, how do I make that experience a little bit better, right? How do you invoke a little bit of change in what I talk to my kids about or how I, how I do my work? And so there's always little bits that are always constantly tinkering within that overall very predictable schedule and structure. variety isn't the North Star for me anymore. Professionally, the implications there. Are, like I've, I've started to lean into my strengths much harder versus trying to focus on my weaknesses. And I see myself less trying to build skills, but build a track record and leaning on my skills to do that right now. In a point of my life in my career where I'm very uh, much more specialized, trying to get much more depth, etc. And and that is that's a very different mindset that I had ten years ago, and and one that has really reoriented me in how I work. Mm.
0: Uh, and since you you talked about schedules, I'm always curious to hear. How do you kind of build some decompressed time into your schedule?
1: Yeah that's gotten a lot harder now with, with working from home. The commute I, mean, I don't miss commuting, mm-hmm. but the one benefit one of the benefits has been it creates a buffer between work life and home life, mm-hmm. right The whatever 30, 45 minutes it takes to get it to get back and forth gets you in a place of transition. That's a little bit harder now. But I think the things that have helped is... Just very tactically, in the morning, I try not to take meetings before 11 o'clock, right? That means I can shift in a little bit easier. I can get into a, uh, a creative flow. I can get into those things without having to sort of jumpstart the day. So that's one thing that, that helps in in that regard quite a bit. Towards the end of the day, I'm usually going right from a meeting to back to, uh, to playing with my kids. That's a little bit harder, right? It's like you're, you're having to shift a huge, making a strong pivot there. So that's one that's that's currently uh, I'm still trying to work on making that transition a little bit smoother. But So I've gotten the morning, I think, a little down a little bit better, but the evening has gotten uh, not so good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't actually originally plan on asking you about this. How has becoming a father changed you?
1: We're getting a lot more time, I think, to cover everything in there. <laughs> There's so much, but I, I think it's I think it's done a time. One is, I think it's made me more patient. I think it's made me more empathetic. And that's for a few different reasons. One is, the more my wife and I understand what drives happiness, which is all that we want for our kids, a huge determinant that has been empathy. And so that's one thing that we've tried to instill and live up to and try to get a lot better at and since we've become parents so that's one that I'm always challenge trying to try to improve on and and, um, and catch myself if I find myself not being very empathetic and that's now that starts with my kids but it's now permeated into with my wife and now with my team and with other professionals I work with with my friends so so it's had a cascading effect through a lot of relationships for me that was a big that was a big aha there the other realization is you know as a father and also as a as a business leader you're always being watched it's less about creating moments of brilliance but more about consistency how do you make the highs a little bit lower and the lows a little bit higher to create a more consistent experience if you have missteps make them so that you can recover quickly from those, et cetera. So I think those have been things that, you know, fatherhood has, has helped me appreciate and understand
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that have permeated beyond sort of the walls of my house.
0: Yeah. And, and do you talk with your boys in in English and Portuguese? Or...
1: Mostly in English. Mostly in English. My wife's American and doesn't speak Portuguese. So that that dictates a lot of that. We do yeah. try to inject some Portuguese through books and things like that, which is one. It keeps me <laughs> on top of my Portuguese, which is a lot of practice these days. But yeah. two, uh, the boys enjoy some of the words that come out in Portuguese. Some of them are pretty funny to pronounce and, and very different from their English doppelganger. So, so they yeah. enjoy. Uh, so they enjoy some of the words like pipoca, which is a fun word to say. You <laughs> make Portuguese for, for popcorn. So. So once yeah. them, they'll, they'll watch on and things like that and just start yelling it over and over again. And that's kind of fun.
0: <laughs> cool. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about interests in, and preferences. You mentioned golf. How did you get into golf? Yeah.
1: Since we were like Brazil, not a lot of golf being played in Brazil. Certainly not when I was growing up. But the American side of my family, my mother's American. So her side of the family is certainly the males in that side are addicted to golf. My grandfather in particular is a lifelong golfer. He's 90 years old, still tries to play when he can. And he, so he got me hooked on the drug and he got my father uh, hooked on the drug too. So for that, for those were things that I think, I think it largely stems from there. So it's one of the things that when I came to the United States every summer with my family and my cousins and uncle and things like that, it was something to, to do and get out of the house to do. And I, and I wanted to keep going throughout the year when I was down in Brazil. So, so it comes from there, but I think it's, I think it's been interesting because I, you know, it's an individual game, right? It's your, sort of your own pursuit. So a lot of the things that uh, like, it's got a very technical skill component to it, right? Which if you gather anything from me in this conversations that I'm very into those kind of things, very analytical, very technical. So, so I like that aspect of it. So it really, it had an affinity to me because of how I'm sort of wired. So I think that's mm. that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you what your handicap is?
1: Well, now it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> now it's awful. I mean, two young boys, don't play a whole lot, didn't play a yeah. lot when I was in college. Um, but growing up in Brazil, I did play a lot competitively. And one yeah. of the benefits of that is I got to represent Brazil in a few international competitions, oh, wow. which which is really cool. I mean, I, I never would have gotten a chance if I played in a place that had any kind of like strong talent hotbed. But, mm-hmm. but having played for Brazil was really cool because got to do, got to, you know, fly the flag and, and see and represent, which was, which was cool. I, I, that was a unique experience that really struck me. If I grew up now and playing as well as I did then now, I couldn't compete, the talent's gotten a lot better, but but yeah. I was able to, I was able to, to, to fool them a little bit and get, get a chance to have those experiences.
0: Yeah. So I want, I want to round off the conversation going back to where we started, which was coffee. (laughs) Do you use any particular technique, any special equipment, or is it just whatever's available?
1: I I just took a swig now that you reminded me to get a little bit more. I was just gifted from my parents a nice espresso maker. So now that we're, you know, hunkered in the house, it's been really nice to, to use that versus sort of regular run-of-the-mill drip coffee, but before that, we talked about Google earlier on, Google's got great perks. And one of the perks in in many of the offices, including the one that I'm a part of is like a great set of baristas that make coffee on the fly. So a lot of us folks who are very, uh, very keen on that experience and and enjoying that have, have now sort of gravitated to our own makeshift work from home setups to compromise on coffee. So nothing fancy. I don't I don't get too artisanal with it. It's just something that I can push the button. If I find the right beans, I can still be mm-hmm. close to the coffee. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the right beans is key. And then also just grinding fresh beans. Yes. Makes a huge difference.
1: For sure. That was a shift that I made about a year ago and we'll never go back.
0: Again. Yeah. Yeah. One roughly $30 investment we've made recently in the coffee world is getting an AeroPress. And that's been a life changer.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, it's key. You know, life's too short for that coffee. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So, uh, so just to wrap up, do you have anything specifically that you would like people to check out? You would like to point people towards?
1: Nothing from, nothing of mine specifically. I think if if folks are interested in some of the topics that we talked about today, talk about podcasts and how that's sort of how I curate a lot of my content. So there are a few that come to mind if we sort of zoom in on the clarity of thinking piece that we covered earlier. I think there's a few that I that I can sort of point people to if they're interested in pursuing that further. One is called The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish and pulls from a really strong set of guests. They, they focus in on this particularly clarity thinking, mental models, et cetera. It sounds a little like dense, but it's actually really not. And, and I think it really helps it's actually the opposite, it actually helps you give with very simple frameworks, get into understanding concept, understanding moving pieces, understanding dynamics. So, I, so that's one that I would highly recommend, so the Knowledge Project. The other that is clarity of thinking applied in a very different and dense context is The Drive with Peter Atia. And this is all about medicine, all about health and well-being. They go very deep right? Dissecting medical journals, etc. It's given me a very different appreciation for for medicine and understanding how medicine is actually much more ambiguous than I thought it was at one point. But I think it's got a very, they go deep and they go dense, but then they unpack using very simple models and frameworks understanding like, okay, here's what this means. Here's why the body behaves, it does. So it actually gives me more educated sense for, for medicine. So that's a very very deep application of clarity of thinking but one that's that i that was much much newer to me and i still still enjoyed a lot of the content coming out of that
0: awesome yeah I'll, I'll include links to that in the show notes i haven't listened to either of those so i'm looking forward to that cool well thank you so much dan this has been amazing to hear about your professional and personal life journey so thank you so much for uh, sharing with all of us
1: well thanks for having me on i really enjoy that you've taken this up I and mean, that you're doing this i think the guests been fantastic. And I let me know anytime I can do this again, I'd love to do it.
0: So that's it for episode four. One of the many answers that stayed with me is how Dan approaches life differently to 10 years ago. Variety isn't the North star for me anymore. That's a great quote. Well, I got a lot out of this and hope you did too. Feel free to reach out to me via LinkedIn or email and let me know what you think. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time.